This is still the setting of the Feast of Tabernacles. We're coming to the end of this. Um, we're coming to the end, actually, of the part one. John's gospel can be neatly divided into two parts. The first part takes us all the way through chapter 10, verse 42. So you could mark your Bible there. When you get to 42, you've got the end of part one. Then part two starts, and it will take us through the rest of John's gospel. But this is still Jesus teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. And in this teaching, John gives us Jesus. So it's John writing, but he's writing of this eyewitness account of his experience with Jesus. And this was a teaching that Jesus did in John's hearing. And so he's recorded that. And in this teaching, Jesus is illuminating something. He's highlighting something. He's highlighting the distinctiveness of who he is. And what he does, he's highlighting, the, he's illuminating the distinctiveness of, of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry, and how he stands in contrast to the religious leaders of the day, which have been in an argument with Jesus for the last few chapters. And they just finished an argument over, over the healing of the blind man. And you remember from chapter 9, you can go back onto the podcast and catch up with those if you need, if you need to. But it ends, we see this section ends with, again, that division. There's this division, and they're talking about the, the healing of the man born blind. They're, they're saying he's teaching this. Some are saying he's got a demon. Others are saying, really, could he have a demon and, and heal the man born blind? So John's giving us, he's illuminating for us the distinctiveness of who Jesus is. Why? That we might, that every reader of this gospel might understand, their eyes might be illuminated to who Jesus is. Why? For what purpose? Is it good enough just to know who Jesus is? No, John doesn't want you to stop there. He wants you to understand who he is so that you would believe in him. And then what do you get? Oh, I've been teaching John for a lot. Of time here. What do we get if we believe in Jesus? John's telling us, I've been telling you week in and week out, eternal life, life in his name. So John's writing. He wants you to see who Jesus is so that you'll believe in him and then in believing in him, have life in his name that starts at the moment you believe and then lasts forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. Amen? Here's, John, here's what John would say. The more you know Jesus, the better he gets. So the more you pull back the layers, the more John shows us Jesus, the better he gets. That's not true for most people. <laughs> it's like the more I get to know people, the more I go, no. I did like them. You know what? They should have shut their mouth a few minutes ago. Because I, I, I really liked them. You've had this experience. There are a lot of people out there probably who have liked me a lot until they really got to know me. Jesus is the only one that we could ever say, the more you get to know him, the better he gets. The more you get to know him, you see that there are no warts. There are no cracks. There are no flaws if you make Jesus your ultimate hero. But if you make anything else 
your hero. You make any other person your hero, they will let you down. There is a link here to the immediate preceding section. There's no break in the flow. We just dealt with the man born blind and the argument Jesus is having. And the reaction in verse 21 that we just read, can a demon open the eyes of the blind, is a reference to that miracle that has taken place. There's continuity in the content of Jesus' sermon. What's the continuity? Well, the Pharisees' treatment of the formerly blind man. Remember the way they interrogated him? Remember the way they treated him? The Pharisees' treatment of him, the religious leaders of the day, is simply an expression of spiritual blindness. If they could see, they wouldn't treat him this way. It also represents a grievous dereliction of duty on their part. They were the religious leaders of the day, and they should have treated Jesus better, and they should have treated the blind man better than they do. And so Jesus goes into this teaching on who the good shepherd is, who the real shepherd is, who, what, what is he like? And he's not like these spiritual leaders who have been derelict in their duty to care. I'm not like that. This is another I am statement. Maybe you've been keeping a list of them. We've seen that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says that I am the bread of the world. I'm the bread of life. Now he's telling us that he is, I am the good shepherd. We saw that repeated a couple times. The whole theme is the shepherding theme. But even in there, he says he's a door. What is Jesus getting at by identifying himself as a good shepherd and as a door? We need to understand those things if we would see the distinctiveness of his ministry so that we might believe and have life in his name. This functions like a parable. Jesus is telling a story, and it says, whenever Jesus told parables, it says in verse 6, this figure of speech, what figure of speech? He's using this analogy of a shepherd and a gatekeeper and the sheep, and they're all confused. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying. So there's, there's more explanation that comes, but it functions like a parable. There's a point to the story and the imagery that Jesus is using. Now, Jesus' imagery of a great shepherd would have been extremely familiar to his early listeners, but it is extremely unfamiliar to all of you who live in Chester County, Pennsylvania in 2021. You have absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about. Most of us don't know the first thing about farming unless we had a friend who was a farmer. They understand, even they were confused by the, by the spiritual imagery, but they weren't confused by the, the, the imagery of the day. When Jesus said shepherd, they had a concept. They lived in a society where sheep farming was an essential staple part of the economy. What's that for us? I don't know, it'd be like a doctor or a counselor. I don't say things that, that, that we spend our money on. The pen that he speaks about, this sheep pen, you gotta understand this. The pen was probably a large communal enclosure where shepherds brought their sheep 
to stay at night. If you've ever been in older cities like Philadelphia, they have these little blocks or squares where they have like, it's like one square block is a park. It's, a, it's, like, it's like the green, the village green. Do you know, why that, you know why that's there originally? That was because in the city, there wasn't a lot of place for people to put their animals. So they would all walk them over to the village green, leave them there overnight, then come get them in the morning. That's what was happening in this pen. It was a large communal enclosure. Several flocks were herded there for safety at night. So a shepherd would bring his flock, the gatekeeper would open the gate, and his flock would go. Then another shepherd would bring his flock, and his flock would go. Another shepherd bring his flock, and his flock would go. The calling of the sheep in the morning is crucial. If you don't understand Jesus calling his sheep and, and the sheep know his voice and they hear his voice, if you don't understand that, you won't get anything out of it. It won't make Jesus' ministry, it won't illuminate the distinctiveness of his ministry. So what did, what happened? How did the shepherd, have you ever seen anything like this? Um, you look, if I brought up 10 sheep onto the stage, you couldn't tell one from the other. And they wouldn't look like what you think they look like either. You think of sheep and lambs as something you see on a Hallmark card. If you've ever had them or owned them, they're filthy. They stink. Imagine, though, hundreds of them all shoved into an enclosure for the night. How does the shepherd... Go, you're going to mix all of them together? How am I going to find mine in the morning? How do you do that? Maybe tattoos. You tattoo the lip, ear. You start checking ears. You've got 500 sheep in there. You check ears. You check brands. No. You know how they do it? They open up the gate, and the shepherd goes in, and he speaks, he says a word, and then all the sheep that spend all kinds of time with him every day run to him. I can tell by the way you went, mm, <laughs> that you got something out of that. That's a picture. I don't even have to tie it up any tighter than that. Jesus knows you. And you know him if you're in Christ. During the night, though, they hired a guard. He was the one that maintained the gate. He would remain at the door. So the shepherd probably all pulled their money together and said, here, we're going to pay you to stay here tonight. Don't let anybody in here. That's not us. So he wouldn't. Robbers and thieves couldn't get through that gate. Why? Someone was guarding it. How'd they get in? It tells you how they got in. Jumped the fence. Another spot. They just over the top and in. The guard would only admit the real shepherds in the morning when they arrived. Now, there's rich biblical imagery here. I want to I show something to you. Write this down. 
Because I think um, this will help many of you to understand the context in which Jesus was speaking. Write down Ezekiel 34 and read that later today. I'm not going to read it all to you right now because we just simply don't have time to read 31 verses of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel, let me just back up and say Ezekiel was a prophet. And he prophesied that there was one, a coming Savior, but he also prophesied judgment on the spiritual leaders of the day. It was his indictment, Ezekiel 34, on the false leaders or, and he even refers to them as the false shepherds of God's people. So Ezekiel 34 would have been something that any Old Testament uh, Jewish person would have had in mind when Jesus began to talk about himself as the good shepherd. These shepherds have failed to care for the sheep, and, and Ezekiel's clear. They don't feed the sheep. They don't help them when they're in need. They clothe themselves, Ezekiel 34.3 says, they clothe themselves with the wool and, and slaughter the choice animals for themselves. As a result, Ezekiel tells us the nation is going to be plundered by its enemies. But God makes two promises. Listen to these promises because this, this connects with what John is telling us in this chapter. God makes two promises in Ezekiel 34. One, he himself will come and be the shepherd of his sheep, rescuing them, regathering his flock, passing judgment on the false shepherds, and passing judgment on the sheep where appropriate. That's his first promise. The second promise that he makes in Ezekiel 34, so this is God making a prophetic promise to his people. He will appoint a new shepherd. Ezekiel 34. Let me just read these couple verses. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Do you see the connection between what Jesus is saying here and what Ezekiel has prophesied in chapter 34 of his book. Jesus is setting himself in complete contrast to the false religious spiritual leaders of the day. They're known as thieves and robbers. They've jumped the fence. Those Pharisees that are arguing with him over the healing of the man born blind are the spiritual leaders of the day, and their ministry is in contrast to the unique ministry of the great shepherd, the one Ezekiel prophesied that would come and, and gather and care for his people. This is him. This is him. So let's just look at the kind of good shepherd Jesus is. I just want to give you a couple thoughts here that are, that are right here in the text and I think will be helpful to us. First off, in verse 1 and 2. The first is, the first point that I want you to see is that that the good shepherd has been appointed by the Father. He's been appointed by the Father. Verse 3 says, The sheep 
know his voice. They listen to his voice. So, so here's a, a, an application question for us. Do you listen to God's voice? Do you listen to his voice? Do you hear his voice? Do you have regular times where you can say, the Lord is speaking to me through his word? That's how the Lord speaks to us. It's the Holy Spirit in us applying the truth of God's word to our hearts. So one of the ways you could ask yourself this is, do I spend time in God's word? Because if you don't spend time in God's word, I might say it this way, the, the, the amount of time you spend in God's word is going to be commensurate to the amount of time you would ever say you hear God's voice. Many people in, this, in the Bible refuse to listen to Jesus. But there's a lot of people that listen to him gladly. How do you listen to Jesus? The blind man responded. Remember he came to the blind man. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he that I might believe? And he says, the one who has healed you and the one who's talking to you is, is him. Lord, I believe. Now, now listen, there was a point in time where the blind man couldn't see Jesus. He could only hear Jesus. And his voice led him to put his faith in Jesus alone. There was a confidence in the faithfulness of God. Did he understand everything? No. But he heard God's voice and said, Lord, I believe. Have you heard God's voice and said, Lord, I believe? Would that be indicative of how you live your life right now? Those who would say they believe must go on believing, must go on listening. You with me? The scripture says in verse 3 that he calls his own sheep by name. It's common for shepherds to give particular names to their sheep. Descriptive of some trait or characteristic. Long ears. One eye. White nose. I love nicknames. No one can dish out nicknames like teens either. Like, like, like an athletic team of, of boys or girls. Oh my goodness. You remember those days? Teens are ruthless, man. They can be ruthless like with their names. And I just remember some of the things that we would call people. They were not endearing terms either. I was just talking to my son. He's, he's been in a gap year. He worked in a warehouse. Uh, he worked in a warehouse. And he said, there, so there was this whole team of people that worked together in the warehouse. He said, one of the guys doesn't have any teeth. So they call him Nibbles. That's brutal. Nibbles, if you're listening, God loves you. It's in personal terms that God has called you. He knows you 
and he loves you. And I'll bet you he has a nickname for you. And it's not nibbles. <laughs> but even if Jesus did call you nibbles, it would be a reflection of his love for you. Got a whole new set of teeth coming, bro. Jesus calls us by name. He knows you. He loves you. Some of you need to hear that this morning because your circumstances are such that you've been wondering, does God know where I am? Does God even know me? Out of millions and millions of people, how could he know me? He knows you. He calls his own by, uh, his, by their name. His own hear his voice. They know him. He knows you, and he loves you, and he's using this circumstance just like he says he will. He's, you, you don't see the big picture. He sees it all. He's accomplishing things in your life right now that he's going to use the trial. He's going to use the circumstance. He's going to use the disappointment. He's going to use this in some way that you're going to look back on and say, God, you did something in me. You used that for good, and I could have never done that for myself. Jesus loves us. He leads them and guides them. Verse 3. This is in distinct contrast to the Pharisees. They lead and guide them by beating people with rules. Follow the rules. Follow the rules. Jesus doesn't lead you that way. Now, there are rules that are reflective of his character, but in its essence, being a Christian is having a real relationship with a real living God. That's way better. If you feel like right now you're living under the weight of rules and a religious system and do, 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 and you're being beat down by friends or, or by the church or by whatever, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding God. That's not God's heart. God doesn't lead you by beating you. God leads you. God, Jesus doesn't lead you by saying, follow the rules. He leads you by saying, follow me. Aren't you glad of that? It just made me think, just a, a brief illustration I remember. Uh, I grew up uh, in, near Garnet Valley, and, and uh, my closest friend was Kurt Twiddell. I think he might be listening today. Hi, Kurt. It's, it's good. I haven't seen you for a while, but um, I'm glad you're listening. His family were, were farmers. Kurt was the 12th of 12 kids, and they were farmers. And I can remember this. I'm going to try to just get right to the chase on this illustration. But I remember his dad had bought like maybe 100 calves. His dad, Bob Twiddell, whom I loved. And he bought these calves and he raised them. He was a simple farmer, a small farmer. He raised them up until he could sell them as, as full-grown cows. And on the day he was selling them, he would use me and Kurt to help get them into the truck that they would pull. They'd pull a trailer in and they'd, they'd get these cows up. And I could never forget, this farmer showed up. He was like a, he was a wealthy farmer, rich farmer. Like he pulled up in a really nice truck, nice trailer, had nice clothes on. And when he got out, he said, I'll take it from here. Like these are, these are the 20 that I've bought. I'll get them into the 
into the trailer. And he produced this electric cattle rod prod. And he just started going in there, zap, 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 zap. He's marching all over. I mean, these things were bucking. They were going everywhere but into the trailer. I mean, he, had, he just created mayhem. And Bob got so angry. I almost, I almost I'm, I'm surprised he didn't call the deal off. He got so angry. He said, put that, and he had some choice words, thing away. Go get in your truck. And I'll load these. And he, he went over to a, a, a tree and he broke a little branch off of the tree, a little switch. And, and he just put it in his hand and then he started talking to him. He called him. Come on. And every once in a while he would just tap, not hit. One would start to veer off and he'd just put the little stick on it. Within like three minutes, all 20 of them up into the trailer. What's the point? Jesus leads more like Bob Twaddell than he leads like someone with a cattle prod beating you into submission, shocking you, charging you. There's the rules. Jesus doesn't lead that way. He calls you. He loves you. Over here. Over here. Now, if you keep going, he might. I love you too much to let you go down over there. Back over here. That's how Jesus leads us and guides us. Aren't you glad of that? His sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus is recognized by his own and they gladly submit their lives to him. The false leaders are thieves and robbers. They attempt to come in another way. They offer salvation by another means. They're false shepherds whom the sheep don't recognize and it says they will run away from. Now some of you are following false gods. You're following false ideas. You're following a false means of salvation. You know who you are. You're, you maybe know of Jesus, but you're putting your hope and your trust in this thing, whatever that thing is. It's something that's jumped over the fence, got your attention, and you believe that your satisfaction and your happiness is going to come in this thing. And Jesus is telling you right now, just like we see these people, run away. Run away. It's a false hope. It's a false gospel. It's a false salvation. And it will not satisfy you. It will not deliver you the way you think that it's going to. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. God is calling some of you, you're in a relationship, maybe you're married and you're entering into a dangerous place, into a relationship with someone else. God is saying, run away, run away. Maybe, maybe there's something else that you're starting to put your hope in, money, a job, a certain measure of success, and you're really tempted to just throw it all in on this. And God is saying to you, listen to my voice, run away, it will not rescue you. God's calling some of us to run away and to run to Jesus. Will you run? Will you run to Jesus? Run to him, he loves you. A few more thoughts. We'll have the band return. There are these blessings that the Good Shepherd brings, 
And then I, I wanted to look at how these blessings are received. And then I wanted to look at who these blessings are for. And so in order to accomplish that, I would need to speak very rapidly. But let me just highlight some of the blessings that the Good Shepherd brings. We see these in verses 9 and 10. The Good Shepherd brings salvation. He brings salvation from all the threats, from all the dangers which surround us. And he also brings salvation from the lostness that was brought about by our sin. Jesus is the gate of this salvation. We said, what does that mean? I am the door. I am the gate. What does he mean? When he compares himself to a door, what does he mean? Jesus compares himself to a door because he is. You listening? Are you listening? He's the only way to God. Jesus said it this way in another gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through who? Jesus. Through what? Him as a door. You got to go through that door. You can't jump the fence in another area. You got to go through the door of Jesus. There's no other. There's no other way to be saved. Obedience to a set of rules has never saved anyone. You follow me? Did I just say that obedience is bad? No. I'm saying as it relates to a door, as it relates to saving you, obedience has never saved anyone. Obedience comes after salvation. <laughs> Apologetics. It's being able to defend your faith. A sound apologetic argument has never saved anyone. Apologetics is not the door. Can apologetics be helpful? Absolutely. It's never saved anyone. Being baptized as an infant. It's never saved anyone. A good, solid, moral improvement plan has never saved anyone. Political ideology will not save you. Critical race theory will not save you. Doing acts of social justice will not save you. Democracy will not save you. Capitalism won't save you. These things don't save. Being a good guy will not save you. A college education will not save. Living the American dream will not save. A good marriage will not save. A romance, a good friend will not save. A healing won't save. A miracle won't save. A good job and a solid career won't save. Becoming a missionary won't save you. What will save you? Jesus. Are you clinging to Jesus? Then you have a sure doorway into salvation. Just write this down and think on it because I'm not going to unpack it. The blessings that the good shepherd brings are first salvation. Second is security. Verse 9, they come in and go out and find pasture. There's security. The, the other thing that he brings is satisfaction or life to the full. So his blessings are salvation and security and satisfaction. You can think on these things. How do we get them though? If those are the blessings, salvation, security, and satisfaction, how are these blessings received? How are these blessings won? That should be the question. How do I get them? 
great comedian, Brian Regan, was looking at Pop-Tarts. And he was, he was looking at a pack of Pop-Tarts and was in, uh, fascinated by the fact that they had instructions for how to enjoy them. He's like, does anybody really need instructions on how to enjoy a Pop-Tart? Like, open package, place in toaster oven. And he says, how do I get that goodness in me? Is anybody really asking that question? How do I get this goodness in me? <laughs> the question we should be asking is, if this is who the great shepherd is, and this are the distinctives of his ministry, and this is what he does, and this is what are the blessings that he brought to us, how do I get those good things in me? How do I get that? How are these blessings won? For the kingdom to come, for this new life to be made available to you and to me, something has to happen. For us to enjoy the blessings of salvation, the blessing of eternal security, the, the, the blessing of a deep and eternal satisfaction, what has to happen? Look at verse 11. It answers your question. For the kingdom of, to come, for you to get God's goodness in you, the shepherd must suffer. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you want what the good shepherd came to bring? Then you have to receive the one who laid down his life for you. Shepherding is hard, demanding, costly life. None of us would ever want to do it for more than 24 hours. It's not carrying soft, clean little lambs around all day. If you remember the story of David, when he was a shepherd, he defended his flock against attacks. Do you remember that? He killed a bear. He killed a lion that were trying to attack the flock. That's a picture of the shepherd. The true shepherd is the good one who puts himself in the way of danger when that's necessary. What's Jesus predicting? He's predicting Calvary. He's predicting his suffering and death on a cross. His love for his own will lead him to, Amy and I were talking about this word this week, inexorably. His love for his own will lead him to inexorably sacrifice himself for them, inexorably. What's that mean? Irrevocably, unchangeably, without any possibility of turning back. Jesus is going to do something to secure your salvation, and he's not turning back. There's no shadow of turning with him. The unique picture John provides here, though, is of a shepherd and his willingness to not only protect the sheep, to not feed the sheep and care for the sheep, but he's unique in this way. He lays his life down for his sheep. That's a unique shepherd. That's a special shepherd. That's the great shepherd. Why? What's Christ's underlying rationale for his actions? The sheep are in danger. The sheep are under threat. The good shepherd acts on their behalf and secures their deliverance. Jesus saw you in your plight. He saw you in your lostness, in your spiritual blindness. You were trapped and caught. And sure judgment 
was awaiting you for your rebellion against your creator. Jesus saw that predicament, laid his life down for you, took the punishment that you deserved so that you might be free to have life in his name for all eternity. Oh, church, praise the Lord. Jesus embodies the goodness and the nobility of a love that could never let us go, even to the point of bearing our guilt. Who are they for? Who are these blessings for? They're for those that are in the fence, the pen, that reference to Old Testament imagery of the flock, but it's also referenced when Jesus says, I have those outside of the flock. It's the reference to the Gentile church. Millions and millions and millions who over the ages would fall under the spell of Jesus. Have you fallen under the spell of Jesus? Millions and millions who would hear his voice and believe. Is that you? Millions and millions who through his sacrifice for their sins would receive a share in his abundant life and his kingdom. Is that you? Those are who those blessings are for. Look at the division we end with. Division stirs up. Some call him a demon. Some are in their accusation deepening resolve on their part of Jesus' opponents, a determined closing of the eyes to the light. And when you close your eyes to the light, it gets darker and darker and darker. What are we to make of Jesus? What are we to make of the great shepherd? That's really the question. How are we to handle his unparalleled claims? We can't stand back just in judgment on these Jews. What are we to make of Jesus? What will you do? It's your turn. What do you make of Jesus? That's the most important question for you. The choice is inescapable. Is he, as he claims, the only savior of the world? Or is he some deluded victim of some problematic, crazy obsession? You've got to choose. It's your turn. Everything, without exception, hangs on your response.